There's no risk in the banking system and everybody's happy. You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show. It is Monday. I'm Matt Copenheffer. This is David Hansen. How do you do? The team is back together. David, it's been a couple How of long? weeks now. I feel like um, I feel like I don't know what to do with my hands anymore. What? What? This is You're crazy. all thrown off. Everything's changed. We're ready today because today is a big day. Uh, what is today? What is Monday? It's today is Germany's first Germany game did. in the World Cup. Okay. Germany taking on Portugal in the World Cup. Is that why you're wearing this get-up here? That is why I'm wearing this get-up. I've got my throwback Germany jacket. I've got my special Germany bow tie. Looks good. It's called the Werner. The Werner bow tie. I'll be rooting for Portugal. You... <laughs> Let's Watch get onto the headlines. Let's move on to the headlines. I, I can't even... I don't even know what to do about that. First headline comes from the Financial Times. Cost of insuring against bank defaults back at pre-crisis levels. David, this is all about the, the CDS premiums on bank debt. Mm -hmm. Down, down, down. Does this mean that there's no risk left in the banking sector? Definitely. There's always it, risk in the banking sector. No, no, no. Sector. It means that there is no risk left. Oh, that's what it means. So, that's yeah, back means. to 2000 levels. It wasn't really a question. That, that was rhetorical. Okay. 2007, Bank of America back to those levels. Citigroup back to those levels. And I think it says more about how wrong the pricing was back then rather than today's pricing is back to nobody cares about risk anymore. Mm -hmm. When you look at what's on balance sheets today, capital levels today, they should be back at pre-crisis levels. I would argue that the pre-crisis levels were wrong. And right. today, right, I think today they're probably <laughs> safer. Yes, they easy. were wrong. Anybody who owned, who, who was providing that protection uh, pre-crisis knows that that pricing was, was very wrong. Um, do you, do you think that it's more right today? Do you think it should be even lower today? Uh, it, it, maybe. Uh, it, is, it is definitely more correct today than it was then, obviously. And when you look at stock multiples... I'll remind, I'll remind viewers and listeners that you are not a CDS trader. So. Not a CDS trader. But when you looking at the stock multiples of these companies here, drastically lower right. than what they were in 2007. Most of those banks were trading above two times book above three times book in, in many cases today, most around one or, or two times book there. So same levels of CDS spreads, but multiples that you're paying for the equity, significantly cheaper. So I think that is a good thing. All right, uh, moving on to the second headline. Second headline, going over to DealBook. Settlement talks stall for Citigroup and the Justice Department. The Justice Department cannot get on the same page with anyone, right? Well, Bank of America stalled, Citigroup stalled now? Yeah, because they're turning the screws on everybody now. So, so we're going from talking about how the CDS spreads have come down, about how confidence seems to be coming back, uh, about the prospects of default for some of the larger banks. And at the same time, I've got a question. Is the, I don't want to say the government because that's too broad and overreaching, but is the Justice Department, I mean, working a little bit against what the, what the Fed and other parts of the the system, let's say, are, are trying to do. I, I mean, in the wake of the financial crisis, we want greater confidence in the banking system. We want greater capital levels in the banking system. I, I can applaud the idea that you want to punish the banks for, for doing wrong things, but at this point in time, trying to get, I mean, they're talking about trying to get a $10 billion settlement out of Citigroup for uh, mortgage missteps. And Citigroup wasn't even a big player in the market. Mm -hmm. The estimated so, number for Bank of America, I've heard, is up to $17 billion potentially. So 
some big numbers thrown in here, but you could also argue that maybe they're striking while the opportunity is good. The banking system seems to be in a healthy position compared to a couple years ago. So maybe they're saying, okay, now that everyone's in good shape, we can let's get as go much money as we now let's go after want. it because it won't shake confidence as much as it would have even three years ago in 2011 if the Justice Department would have came in and said, we're asking $17 billion from Bank of America in the summer of 2011. That would have been disaster. What, what they it, couldn't have done it. What does it achieve? Does it achieve anything? I mean, let's say they get $17 billion out of They've Bank got of a America. job. They've got a job. They've got a mandate to Why not handle the $30 billion? Ma Why make not? it $30 billion. Why not? Even. It's, it's still, it, that kind of settlement is not going to prevent that, those kind of actions from taking place again. They're just doing their job. Third headline. We're going back to, we're going to AIG. This is from the Wall Street Journal. AIG names Peter D. Hancock, new CEO. This isn't new news, mm -hmm. but we're not here all the time. And this is, this is exciting. We've been talking about this potential transition for a long time on this show. Were you, I, I, I'm going to ask, but were you surprised? I know the answer already. I was not surprised, but reading that article, they talked a little bit about Jay Wintraub. And where does he fit in this now? Because he was the other candidate. He runs the retirement group at AIG. He did not get the job, obviously. And it sounded almost like it was an issue whether he was leaving. There was a quote from Peter Hancock that was saying, I'm going to do everything I can to persuade him to stay. That raises a little bit of un unsettledness? Uncertainty. Uncertainty. And not uncertainty, but I wish it wasn't so much, oh, he didn't get the job, he's going to leave now because he's a big part of that company there. So it was a little disappointing to hear the fact that maybe he is a little on the fence of leaving now. I don't know. Yeah, you've got the, you've got the property and casualty insurance uh, side of AIG. That's what Hancock ran. And you've got the life and retirement, and that's where Jay Wintraub is. This was my biggest issue in thinking about the transition was whoever gets it, what happens to the other guy and how does he feel about it? Uh, I think Hancock was the sort of the front runner throughout the process. And, um, you know, I, I, Wintraub arguably has done a better job in terms of running a, a successful, profitable business within AIG over the past few years. So, you know, who knows how much he created that versus the environment creating mm -hmm. that, other people at AIG's life and retirement, but I'd hate to see J Jay Wintraub leave because of this. Yeah, it says uh, Hancock is going to take over September 1st, so sooner than I thought. I thought Ben Moshe was going to hang around a little bit longer. And compensation details were not disclosed yet. That'll be really interesting to see what kind of compensation package he gets. How are they going to try to keep him there and motivate him? And and what Wintraub gets as well. Exactly. <laughs> that, that could help keep him around, yeah. give him a nice big pay package. Just for Ben, ben Moshe, I'm sure he's ready to get away to, it's Croatia, right? That's yeah. where his ranch is, is Wonderland. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> All right, let's get to the focus for today. The focus for today, we've got a little special, special bit here. Um, on fool.com, I have a real money portfolio where I am given Motley Fool money, the company, the Motley Fool, gives me some money to invest, and I focus I don't know what portfolio. they're thinking. <laughs> I know, it's, it's crazy, right? So I focus this portfolio, not surprisingly, on banks and financial services companies. I've got three buys, three companies that I'm adding to this portfolio today. The first one, already there, already well-represented, hmm. Markel. I'm gonna be buying uh, some more Markel. Uh, second one is Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, this one is, is not there, it's a, Relatively small bank, we'll call it relatively small, mm -hmm. uh, located out in California. And the third one is Blackstone, the private equity giant. So I've got three questions that I think come up from these. From for these yourself? Three, for, for myself. And, uh, and, and I'll take any barbs that you may have. Okay. Gotcha questions. Bring it. So, so with Markel, I think, the, I think the big question is, is 
I've already written a lot about how much I, I like Mark Hale's business and management. At this point, it's, is this becoming too large of a percentage of the portfolio now that I'm adding more to it? I, after I make this uh, purchase, it'll be over 20% of the portfolio. Uh, my short answer is, is no. I, I'm not concerned about this being too high of a percentage of the portfolio within reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, 20, 25% I don't think is too large. Markel, to me, is one of the best long-term opportunities in the financial services space today. I agree. I'm not too concerned that that's 20%. I think that's reasonable there. My question for you is we talk about Tom Gaynor mm-hmm. all the time, great right. investor. On a scale of 1 to 100, how, how sure are you that Tom Gaynor really will be an amazing investor over the next several decades to achieve not the Warren Buffett status, but something along those lines. He's still a young guy, only 50 years old, and he's been investing for several decades, but if you want to play the devil's advocate, you could say there's advantageous time to be in equities mm-hmm. over the last 20 years. It's been a good good market other than 2008. And there aren't many Buffets. We know Buffets. he's invested over many, many cycles here. Gainer hasn't done that necessarily. How confident are you, one to 100, that he is one of those special investors? It's kind of a I'll, tough question, but... I'll put it in the 75 kind of range be, because I, I think he's a smart guy. I think he's willing to... Um, I, I think he, he invests in a way where he's not going to make big, gigantic mistakes. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I think that's what you, you'd want to look out for. So I'm not absolutely convinced that he's going to be Warren Buffett or, or produce you know, double the market's returns over the next 10, 20 years. However, I do feel comfortable that based on his approach and, and his, his style of investing, that he's not going to go out on big limbs, take big risks, do a lot of short-term trading, get into exotics that, mm-hmm. are, that could potentially really cost Markel. Okay, Silicon Valley, what was your question for yourself? Whether it's too pricey. It's trading at about 2.5 times uh, tangible book value. Mm-hmm. Actually, book and tangible book are the same. Uh, compared to some of the other positions that I already have in this portfolio, including Citigroup, uh, JP Morgan's in the portfolio, uh, this is looks expensive. Uh, and, and my answer to myself is that, no, I, I don't think it's too expensive to buy. I certainly would prefer to be buying it uh, cheaper, uh, buying it a lower multiple. But you look at the return on assets that it's been able to produce consistently over time, mid 1% range, 1.5% range, up into the 2% kind of range. Uh, it's very, its leverage is very low right now, about 8.8 times leverage. So it has room to increase that leverage and, and pull up uh, return on equity along with it. And one of my favorite, favorite parts about Silicon Valley Bancorp is that it's been able to, it, it's focus on funding particular types of businesses, startup businesses, mm-hmm. uh, like the Motley Fool. I should probably uh, note that, these, that Silicon Valley Bank is a lender to the Motley mm-hmm. Fool. Um, they have a very sticky customer base, and they have a great uh, percentage of non-interest-bearing deposits. 70% of the deposits at Silicon Valley Bank are non-interest-bearing. That's a great funding advantage. That is quite good. It is quite The good. name is Silicon Valley Bancorp. Yep. Does it give you any worry? Some people may argue Silicon Valley's in somewhat of a bubble these days. Valuation's a little crazy, businesses, people are just throwing money at Silicon Valley. Does that give you any pause to, because they focus on that segment that may be a little overpriced today in some people's mind? No, because this is, this is a, uh, a lending institution. And as compared to 
2000, 2001, where what you had was a bubble overvaluations in companies that didn't have underlying businesses that weren't making money. I think today what you potentially have, wh whether it's true or not, uh, what you potentially have are businesses that are making money, but they're vastly overvalued, their growth potential, their longevity is mm -hmm. overvalued by investors. So that's a little not bit Not necessarily less, their creditworthiness. Right, yeah, I, I don't think, I mean, my take is that we're not gonna have bankruptcies and companies going out of business as much as maybe valuations come down. All right, final one, what do you got? Final one, uh, Blackstone. I think the d general question here is just why? Why are you gonna buy this business? And, and I think there are a bunch of reasons actually. You've got a, a strong management team there, uh, you've got a founder-led management team in there, a lot of insider ownership. Um, I, I think most importantly to me is that you have changes in the financial industry that really um, uh, encourage the, the uh, money going towards the private equity, the alternative asset management mm -hmm. uh, uh, business. So Blackstone, known for its private equity, but it's also got hedge funds, it also has uh, Real estate. Real estate. Real estate is huge. Real estate has been very successful for them. They actually also have a business that that um, gives advice to other private equity firms and, and people looking to raise money. And it also has an investment banking arm. So this is really a very big and diversified business. And as, as the big banks and as some of the other investment banks are trying to figure out what businesses they can stick with, I think that's uh, advantageous for Blackstone companies like it. Looking at, at Blackstone, um, their top line and bottom line, heavily influenced by, by the fees. It's a fee business. They charge a under management fee, plus a big part of it is incentive fees. So a lot of their income is based on how well their portfolios do. And that can vary a lot year over year. Recently, we've seen great incentive fees. Real estate por portfolio has been great for them. How do you think about that when you're trying to value the company? Do you, do you just give yourself a pretty good margin of safety because it's such a variable business there? Yeah, the, the valuation is particularly tricky. I think you really have to think about this as an asset management business. And what you can do is actually think of it more as a sum of parts. Mm -hmm. So like I said, there are some, uh, there's an investment banking arm to the business, so you can value that as an investment bank. And then you look at the asset management type of the business and uh, the asset management part of the business. And traditionally, how you value asset managers is you do it as a percentage of assets under management. Right. So then on top of that, you, you want to compare it to maybe traditional asset managers like a T. Rowe Price or, uh, or companies like that. You want to look at the other private equity uh, companies, compare it to that. But you want to remember, too, that it's going to look more highly priced. It's going to look more richly priced compared to traditional asset managers because the fees are so much higher on the right. assets that's managed. So I think that's the way you have to think about valuation. All right. Good luck. We'll be keeping tabs on your portfolio. Oh, I... I <laughs> I hope you will. All right, moving on to the game for today. We have some fool in the blank. Are we doing mailbag first? Are we? Let's do mailbag. Let's do mailbag first. All right, we have an email address. That email address is WTMI at fool.com. Please send us emails. We love getting your emails. This one comes from Rafi in Israel. Rafi writes, I'm a new member of Stock Advisor. There's a question that really haunts me, and I hope that you could help. You buy stocks for the long run. What should you, as a fool, uh, when there is a real market crash. Would you sell and wait for better days or stay the course with your stocks? What do you say? Concerned about a crash? What are you gonna do? Crashes are scary. But the last thing you wanna do is sell and try to time the market crashes we've talked about many, many times. Mm -hmm. Almost impossible to do. We were at the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting this year. Warren Buffett himself said, I can't time the bottom of a crash. 
I'm never going to be able to time that, so I don't try to do it. As individual investors, I think when the best investor of all time says that, we should say, you hold on to your stocks and don't sell during the crash. Yeah, uh, I can't say too much more than that. We, we did just see a real crash, and that's, mm-hmm. fingers crossed, just, I mean, I'm joking, not really, just fingers crossed. I, I quite, I, I'm not sure when the next time we will see a crash like that happen again. We're going to see downturns. We're going to see the, the stock market lose considerable amounts. But to see something like we just saw in 2000, uh, 2008, 2009, we may not see that again for mm-hmm. a while. And that's a real market crash. That's what Rafi's probably talking about. Um, when, when are these kind of things going to come? I don't think there's anybody. I don't think there's anybody out there that's reliably, reliably predicted it, so it's a bad strategy to try to predict that and buy and sell based on And again, we, we say it all the time, the only money you should have invested is money that you don't need in the immediate future, five years potentially, so think about it that way. Good call, David. Thank you. Now, now can we get to the game? Get to the game. Are you, are you sure? Are you mm-hmm. ready for this? Mm-hmm. All right, full in the blank. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. First one, company's dividend policy ranks blank on the list of things that I look for in a stock. David, full in that blank. Lower than it should. Lower than it should. Okay. You think it should be higher? I think it should be higher. I don't think I spend enough time thinking about the dividend policy of a company and what it means. Because when we talk about valuation, you can look at, all right, this is what the price to earnings is, price to book, this is their their buyback program. The dividend is something very tangible that they have to pay out. It's money going to the shareholders. And I think it says a lot about the actual business, the cash flow that the business is generating over time. Uh, So I consider it maybe gets on my radar for a dividend, but I, I think I should spend more time understanding what is that dividend policy going forward. What do you say? Yeah, I, I could probably go with the same answer. I was going to say right where it should, which is very low on <laughs> the list. You're just right. You're just always right. I, I'm always... I'm, how do you not know that by now? Uh, I should probably consider it more than I do. But in, in general, one of the things that I do focus a lot on is capital allocation in general, and that comes into the general capital allocation focus. Um, so maybe, maybe I was right initially. It's right where it should be. Capital, yeah. But I'm saying of the capital allocation process, the dividend is the hardest to kind of massage around and make it look. It's harder to judge the success of buybacks than it is dividends, I would say. Is it really? I would say it is. I don't know if I agree with that. All right, let's go on to the second scenario. Maybe David will be right on this one. In 10 years, blank will have the largest market cap among U.S. banks. David. Fooling that blank. I'm going to say J.P. Morgan, and it's Wells Fargo today. And there was an article in the Wall Street Journal saying that Wells Fargo is about to become the most highly valued market cap bank of all time, mm-hmm. surpassing Citigroup, or it's on the cusp, right? So 10 years from now, mm-hmm. where does J.P. Morgan sit? I think they are higher than Wells Fargo. I think the multiple has a lot of room to expand there, generate more profits than than Wells Fargo. I think it's J.P. Morgan in 10 years. What What do you think gets it there? But just primarily a multiple expansion? And continuing to earn great returns on its equity, on its assets. It's been a good bank for the long time. I'm going to take the David Hansen approach of, of, of just go, getting crazy okay. in, in your sports. All, all of your sports predictions are, or at least your most recent, your, mm-hmm. your World Cup prediction. Citigroup. I'm going to go back to wow. Citigroup. You want to talk about multiple expansion. Citigroup, has, Citigroup stock has, has plenty of room for multiple, multiple expansion. Huge increase in the market cap just from that. I think performance is going to come back huge. It's got the entire globe as its, as its playing sphere. 
unlike uh, JP Morgan's out there, it's in different different mm -hmm. countries, but not in the same way, not on the ground in other countries. I think Citigroup could be the U.S.'s most highly valued bank. That is very bold. It's, it's bold. I wrote it down with an exclamation point. Citigroup exclamation point. I see. I was there's so shocked. Out, there's an arrow pointing to and it. And underlined. It's crazy. All right, final scenario. Final scenario. LeBron James will be wearing a blank jersey next season. David, fool in that blank. My own Charlotte Hornets. The return of the Charlotte Hornets. LeBron's joining us. It's going to be a good year. It, am I, is that happening? No, it's not going to happen. I hope so. I, I, I hate to the say heat it, are done. Where is where is he going now? Is he going to leave? He's leaving the heat. Well, maybe not. But if he did, where would you want him this to go? This is basketball, right? Yes. I, I think he should try a different sport. Look at look at the size of LeBron. He could do anything. What Why sport he, though? MLS. <laughs> I'm really into soccer right now. A goalie. It's pretty good. He has the length. Defender. That'd be a pretty. Just everything. Yeah. I, I think he could. I think he could go into football. I think he could be a, a good. Uh, where would you put him on a football? Tight team? end. Tight end, really? Defensive Qu end? Quarterback? <laughs> I think quarterback. quarterback. It would be a big quarterback. Dante Culpepper? Is he bigger than Dante Culpepper? Yes. <laughs> How old are... Dante Culpepper hasn't played in like seven years. All right. Let's go to the... Go, go ahead. Go ahead. Make fun of me. <laughs> All right. Let's finish off the day as we always do in the Twitter sphere. David, what's the first tweet? First tweet of the day is from Allison Lichter. He really kind of broke all the rules of radio remembering Casey Kasem. Passed away, over the, is, passed away this weekend. This is really pretty sad. Are, are you old enough that you ever listened to Casey Kasem growing I up? did, yeah. Did you really? This is like top 40. Yeah. Top 40 hits. He was on Saved by the Bell. He made an appearance. He was. He was on At the Max, at the, the dance-off. I remember. Memories, the memories. Yeah, he always had those He always had those great, great stories. This is Casey. I was with someone this weekend who didn't know who Casey Kasem was, and I said he's like the Ryan Seacrest of 30 years ago. Is that an accurate comparison? Kind of, but I don't know that he had as many jobs as Ryan Seacrest. Yeah. I, I think Ryan Seacrest is like a shark. I think he's like bred human shark. I think he has clones. Seen. He just has like multiple of himself running First around. First I thought you said clones. I'm sure he does have clones. <laughs> he probably does, yeah. His name, he doesn't even need, to, it can just be the name of his fragrance, Seacrest. <laughs> <laughs> sounds that like it be, smells good. That, that does. That actually does sound good. If, if he's watching, of course he's watching the show. Yeah. Since he's watching the show, go ahead, email us. You can use that. Just send us a free bottle. Yeah, do it. Second tweet. Uh, we're going to II Funds. That's at INTINV Funds. Uh, headline is, or the tweet is, Canadian housing bubble market makes it all the way to Vienna's newspapers. And there was a picture included of the... Um, the article from Wirtschaft. Is that in German? What that is speaking? in German. Okay. Vancouver Wirtschaft Immobilien Metropole. What does that say? Um, it's it's a, it's it's talking about the um, just the the craziness of the Canadian housing market, and this actually hit Wonk Blog last week too at the Washington Post uh, with the headline: "The biggest housing bubble in the world is in Canada." And this was based on an analysis of, of price-to-rent price ratios and housing markets around the world. We've talked about this before. Is the, is the Canadian housing market a bubble? Is it going to burst? Based on this price-to-rent ratio analysis, it is the high, highest valued um, housing market in the world right now. U.S. right close to even with uh, uh, the price-to-rent ratios mm -hmm. historically. Germany, interesting below historical norms. Interesting. Well, put that in your these pipe things, and smoke it. Those things can take a long time to come to fruition if it is a bubble. People have been saying that for four years now, four to five years, longer than that, and it still hasn't quote-unquote popped. So these things can go on long. Next tweet. Next tweet. 
This is from Mashable, at Mashable. Starbucks plans to send its employees to college for free. You going to work at Starbucks? Quote from the, quote from the Mashable, from the, I think this is just undergrad, quote from the Mashable article, the new program means that workers who qualify for full tuition payment just got a surprise benefit worth about $30,000. It's based on, I think it's about, this is online courses at Arizona, I think it was Arizona State University, yep. $500 a credit. Uh, this is pretty nice. Uh, I mean, this, this isn't a financial company, but we, we often talk about uh, within the sector the cost of uh, higher education and, and how that's just gotten insane. It's pretty nice for Starbucks and pretty nice for Starbucks employees. Online, though? Arizona State? The whole point of going to Arizona State is that you can go to Arizona State, oh right? Oh, gosh. Look at you getting picky here. Yeah. Free college education. Well, yeah. It's, if it's free, I'll take it. All next, right. Next, next tweet. tweet. Uh, this is from Reuters Business. Medtronic to buy Covidian for $42.9 billion rebase in Ireland. I don't have too much to say about this, David, except this is a giant deal. Uh, we've seen the mega merger come back in 2014. Uh, this, is great for big this is great for big banks. This is great for investment banks uh, who are advising on deals like this. Um, this great for the shareholders of the companies involved? Maybe. Maybe. Probably more for the uh, target than the acquirer in yeah. most of these cases. Check in on these, these size of acquisitions. Check in on Wednesday for the healthcare edition of where the money is. I'm sure they'll break that deal yes, down. Yes, absolutely. Good point. Wait to think. That's what we call a promotion. Yeah. All right. Uh, what do we Final tweet. tweet. Final yeah. tweet. Oh, we want me to read it? Yeah. All right. Avoiding stupidity. What are, what, are you, what are you doing here? Do you do something here? <laughs> Avoiding stupidity <laughs> and winning arguments. That's basically the story of my life. Avoiding you, stupidity, and winning the <laughs> argument. The best of what you missed last week all in one place. That's from Shane Parrish at Farnham Street. He gives a rundown of his best reads of the week. Check him out. The avoiding stupidity, Charlie Munger. Um, one, of his, uh, one of his big things was invert always invert. Uh, flip, flip things on their head. Uh, it can be great to go after what is the way that I, I can be most successful, but it can often be a, a good way to flip it on its head and say, what are the ways that I could screw this up? And mm -hmm. you're just talking about Markel and Tom Gaynor uh, earlier in the show. Um, when I think about, when, when you ask, how successful can Tom Gaynor be as an investor over time, I think to myself, how badly can he screw up over time? And the way that he invests and the way that he thinks mm -hmm. uh, gives, me, gives me confidence that he won't screw up in really big ways. Sounds good. I know. All right. All right. That's the show for today. I'm Matt Kobenheffer. This is David Hansen. If you are watching and would like to listen, you can find us on iTunes. And remember, we're now in a uh, bureau department structure. Every day of the week, different, uh, different segment of the market. So be sure to tune in every day to learn everything you need to know about the entire market. Uh, thanks for watching. We'll see you next week.